0: You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 11. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these Worldwide Classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. James Chapter 1 you ever tell the truth in the wrong way, the wrong time, so it didn't do anybody any good? Do you know that if you tell the truth in the wrong way, at the wrong time, people will not thank you for it? There's a verse in the Bible that starts off this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, suppose you took this Bible verse and had it applied to you as follows. You're ready to take the the dream trip, the dream vacation of your lifetime. And just about two or three days before you're ready to take off, climbing the Swiss Alps, you break a bone in your foot. Somebody hears about it. They're very sorry for you. And they think they've got to come and give you some comfort. And so they say, Joe, I've got a Bible verse for you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. So you must consider this account of pure joy as you face this trial. Somebody did this to me once. And I said to them, would you show me that? Can I hold that Bible verse in my hand? Because I was seized, really, for the first and only time in my life, with a desire to use a Bible as a blunt object. (laughs) On their forehead. I actually had. Uh, the truth is that people can use a verse like this to wound people. One of my friends uh, lost his fiance in an automobile accident, and somebody read this to him. I wasn't helpful. You know? Time like that, you want to say, God loves you and I love you, and then you talk about James. When they're ready to talk about James or Romans eight twenty eight, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God. That's true, but first it's time to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Now, the truth is, because I knew that this verse was used on a friend of mine, it was used on me and various other people in this kind of way. I had a certain aversion to the opening section of James, even this very statement, the statement that can be taken in a fatalistic way or in a hard hearted way. And so I avoided it. And then I came to study the book of James a number of years ago and realized that uh, this has a rather different purpose. This passage, this verse is actually not about how to respond to one particular trial, like coming down with a disease or, or losing a job or something of that nature. But rather, it is a truth for all of life. James is using it as his uh, sort of, we might say, his opening motif for his book. He is writing to set the stage for his entire description of what the Christian life might be. The first cycle of the book of James is on how to use trials. Count trials as a joy, he says, Uh, The one thing you need to make the most of your trials is wisdom. And he talks about wisdom, talks about spiritual poverty and riches and uh, sorry, not spiritual, but physical poverty, physical riches, how they can both try us. And then closes by saying, so the man who perseveres, even in a trial, is blessed. The second cycle of the book, chapter one, the opening section of the book, then tells us how not to respond in times of hardship. Things go difficult. Leave for you don't blame god as if god sent this trial to drag you down and show you how weak you were if you stray in a time of trial it's your own sins that lead you astray we'll develop that at more length god's intention even in a trial is to give you a good gift because he's a god who does give gifts and if if nothing else a trial will show your weakness and show your need of his grace and, and by that manner He will give you new birth later on in chapter 1, he says. But above all, what we need to do when we're in the middle of the trials is to hear the word of God and do it and prove our faith to be real. That's that's what he's trying to do, the opening blast of the book of James. But really, it's not just the opening section of James, but really it is his first perspective on the Christian life as a whole. As he writes to people who are Jewish Christians, which was just established a little while ago, Jewish Christians who are strong in knowledge, but weak in life, need to hear this corrective. It is precisely in the trial that you prove that you do have life in God. It is not simply the knowledge of doctrine. Trials are what will push you to action, not just talk, not just doctrine. Trials will reveal what is really in your heart. They'll test you, they'll probe you. Whether you have wisdom or not, whether you have the faith to persevere or not, because really, James wants to tell us, all of life is a trial. All of life is a trial. Follow with me, if you would, through the book of James. James 1, verses 9 to 11. Poverty tries us. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his humble position. He talks about the person who is poor. The person who is poor is in physical need and perhaps suffering mental anxiety. They're treated poorly. They're often powerless. They're abused verbally. Chapter 2 points it out. Chapter 5, if those who are rich and hire them for a day want to withhold their wages, there's often very little they can do. Poverty is a trial, chapter 1, 2, and 5 say. But riches are a trial too. Because riches can cause someone to become proud, to be puffed up, to forget God, to despise the poor, to be hard-hearted. So riches are a trial. And I know what some of you are thinking. I've had plenty of the trial of poverty. I wouldn't mind that trial right now for a while, the trial of riches. But riches are a trial. Number two. Number three. Knowledge tries us. Because the more we know, the more we're responsible to do. If we know of a need, chapter 2 says, you're obligated to use that knowledge to help your brother who may be hungry or thirsty or lacking proper clothes. And if you know enough to teach others, chapter 3, verse 1 says, you'll be judged with more severe judgment because you know enough to teach, so you should know enough to do it yourself. Anything we know, we ought to practice, James says. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Chapter 4, verse 17. It's also uh, important to refrain from using our knowledge to judge others. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So our knowledge tries us. Riches, poverty, knowledge. Our abilities try us. Tongue is a powerful thing. It boasts great things. It can accomplish great things. But it's also a fire devouring all on its path and potentially set on fire by hell itself. The quest for enjoyment and pleasure can cause us to forget others. The energy and ambition that cause us to make plans and say, I'm going to go to this city or that city and make money and profiteer and get rich. That very ambition tries us. In fact, the more successful you are, the more you're going to be tried because you'll be tempted by your very success to forget God. And to forget to say if the Lord is willing. We could add other things as well. You know, athletic ability or physical ability, abilities or, or managerial ability. All abilities, all skills try us. The lure of the world tries us, chapter 4 says. Illness tries us. If we fall sick, we can be laid low. We can despair, become, become weary and give up. Instead of simply experiencing that, um, test yourself when you're sick. Examine yourself for any sin. And so what he's doing with this opening statement in James chapter 1, consider it all joy when your trials, is not saying simply when something hard comes. Yes, when something hard comes, rejoice in that trial. But also, even in the everyday course of life that's yours, anything that happens, I'll put it to you this way, Going to seminary will try you. The test is not just tests, of course, but the test is, what will you do with what you know? Will you simply bask in your knowledge or will you share it with others? Will you become proud of what you know? Or will you be humbled by what you know? Going to seminary will try you, even if it's easy and you love the studies. The basic counsel, then, is to rejoice in trials and let them do their work. That seems a little bit counterintuitive. Don't we rejoice when things are easy and uh, rejoice when uh, all goes our way and bewail trials? Isn't that the way we should think? Yeah, I guess that's true in a way. But again, we need to see if we can ponder and understand the logic here. The logic that's, that's at issue here in verse one, is verses 2 and following is that your trials can develop perseverance and maturity and make complete so that you lack nothing. Let me see if I can illustrate that personally for a minute, how a trial can show us how to become mature and complete, how we can lack nothing. A number of years ago before I came to teach here in the uh, early 90s, I was a college professor for about five years, and my kids were little during those years. They were, one of them was born, and they were, you know, Four years old and one and a half years old when I started. and Little child years have a certain special flavor to them. Need lots of parental attention. Now, when I worked for the college, I had the blessing of a very short commute. I walked four blocks home from the college campus to my house. And I want to tell you, that's the way to commute. Maybe I don't need to tell you that. Maybe you all, maybe you all know that that's the way to commute. And I would tend to leave my office, kind of wrap things up when things got quiet after everybody left, maybe around 5, 15, 5, 20, and walk those few blocks and get to my house when they were you know, around 5, 25 or thereabouts. And that, in case you wonder, uh, is the worst hour of the day in families with small kids because they're kind of tired, maybe they're too old to be taking a nap. But they're still tired, and they need that boost from the food. And mom's trying to make dinner, and so she can't really keep them from squabbling, or getting agitated, or getting bored. And so that, that's just the worst time of the day when kids are little. My kids were about, you know, at this story I'm going to tell you, they were about, you know, six, almost seven, and four, and, and almost one. So when I get home, I could kind of look at my kids, and size them up, and play the wise father. The wise father knows how to calm the savage child. The wise father knows that sometimes when the kids are just quarreling with each other, they don't really mean to be bad. You just walk in and you say, hey, give me a hug. And you wrestle on the floor and you fight and you tickle them and you, you, know, you, blow, you flabbergast in their belly, as we call it at our house, and you know, blow bubbles on their belly and that kind of stuff. And it's just great fun. And other times they're really being naughty and they're being mean to each other. So you've got you to gotta discipline them. But there are different ways of discipline. You could discipline by, you know, by kneeling down and looking them in the eye and say, Honey, now you know that's not right. And, and you know they're just like putty in your hands. And they feel so bad for disappointing their dad. And then other times you have to use the voice of authority. And you never yell at them. You don't need to yell. You just put a certain edge. Now, children. And it's so easy. Why can't everybody be a wise father like me? <laughs> I never quite said that. But there was a little bit of that kind of rolling around the back of my cranium for a few months. Then my wife had a, uh, had a disc problem in her back. Seven, six, seven, four, and about one. She had to go to the hospital for a week. Our youngest was weaned cold turkey it's gone. (laughs) It's over. Mommy's in the hospital now. What's a hospital? She couldn't even ask. And that wasn't the bad part. The bad part was that they kicked her out of the hospital before she was better. And then she had to lie on the floor all day, so I had to take care of three kids and teach my classes and play nurse. And... Cook and clean the clothes and iron and all the rest. And yeah, it wasn't all that, you know, I, you know. I can make a hamburger, but that's not quite the same as making 21 meals a week. First week, I was still a wise father. I still looked them in the eye and was gentle and thought about the right voice. The second week, I started just to not really yell in anger, but just kind of, you know, I called you for dinner. Where are you? Things of that nature. Why are you still up? I wasn't exactly blowing it completely, but I wasn't such a wise father. And one of these times, my wife, when I shouted, trying to get all the way around the downstairs and up the stairs into the back bedroom with one mighty yell for dinner, she didn't say a word. She just caught my eye. And that look in her eye said, Where's the wise father now? (laughs) And I realized I wasn't quite so wise as I thought. Now, this is what trials do for us. Trials expose our weaknesses. If we never had a trial, we would never know our own flaws. We would never know... Where we need to grow to maturity. Let me, by the way, do a little thing to define a trial just for the sake of of discussion. We can divide up the things that come into our life different ways. the, The temptations, the sin. There are some temptations that are fleeting. There are other temptations that last longer because perhaps we invite them into our lives. We do something that brings sin in. I'm going to define a trial. It's not like in the Bible. It's not in the Greek words hidden or anything. But I'm thinking of a trial, something that lasts. Martin Luther said, we, how did he put it now? I'll see if I can get it out of my notes here. Uh, Martin Luther said, we can't keep birds from flying over our heads. But we can keep them from building nests in our hair. And that's, that was his little description of Temptation. I'll call a trial somebody else building a nest in our hair and saying, you can't get rid of it. Something that lasts. That's what points out our weaknesses to us. And his point is that these, these trials show us, can show us, in fact, almost anything. Notice the language in verse 4 Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. What he's saying is, there is nothing that God can't do to you or for you through a trial. Whatever your weakness may be, God can get at that through some trial. He doesn't say, put it this way, when we're in the middle of a trial, we often say, well, at least I'll learn, what do you say? At least I'll learn patience. James doesn't say that. What he says is, There is nothing that he can't do through some trial. Whatever your sin or weakness or immaturity may be, there's a trial that will will show you your need and drive you to the Lord. Now we have to look at what he says. It's not just a general statement, however. Rejoice in trial. There's something else. There are some specifics. First of all, he tells us who should count suffering or trials as a joy. It is my brothers. That is to say it is Christians who know God's hand is in all that occurs in their lives. A non-Christian can be strengthened to greater resolve, perhaps. But a non-Christian can also become bitter and angry and fatalistic and despairing and give up. Or escapist. It's not a general truth that everybody gets stronger through trials. Some are broken down by trials. But a Christian should consider it joy. Consider joy, my brothers. Why? Because the test will develop proven character and endurance. Again, there is nothing that God can't do for us through some trial. Every virtue, any virtue may come about as we look at a trial. Let endurance finish its work. As you know, God is doing his work through a trial, he says. And avoid the wrong questions. What's the wrong question we ask in trials? Why is this happening to me? What's the right question? What can I learn from this? Or, why is this happening to me? I mean, why is this happening to me can be good. And to say, why is this happening to me, even though I don't deserve it? Bad. Why is this happening to me? What What purpose does God have in what's happening to me? Is it? perhaps because of my sin, my folly, because of satanic opposition. Those are fair questions to ask. But above all, the testing of your faith is vital because it reveals your weaknesses. It reveals where you need to grow. Now, he says at the end of verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so you be mature and complete, lacking nothing. But then in verse 5, he gives us one of these little paradoxes that I was mentioning. One of these little... Playful plays on words that are unfortunately often obscured in our English translation, but they're all over the place in the original. Do you notice? You'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Then verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, that little word lack is actually being used in two ways. He's saying the goal will be perfect maturity. You will lack nothing. But if you want to lack nothing, the one thing you better not lack is wisdom. Because it's only by wisdom that you will be able to see the point of a trial. You'll be able to learn what God would have you see. Now, it's not simply that we should, however, go and get wisdom as if, uh, you know, we have to strive for it and, and labor in some way and go to school and so on. He actually says something different about wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God for it. I want you to join with me just for a moment in looking very carefully at verse 5 and look for the encouragements that are present in it about asking God for wisdom. Look at it. Look at it indeed carefully. What are the encouragements or the descriptions of the way in which God gives? If any any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. How does God give? What's the encouragement? Okay, above all, he gives generously. He gives without finding fault. He gives to all. There's one more that you can't tell from the English, and that is that the the way in which the sentence is actually set up in the Greek, it goes like this. Um, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. It's not simply God who gives, but the way it's set up. The word giving, or the one who gives, is, is put between the and God. As if to say to us, he's not simply the God who gives. He is the giving God. This is this is his nature to give. This is part of who he is to give. Let me just go forward a little bit more and define some of these words, a couple more of these words. Um, this is why I use a little Greek on you. The word generously is actually a word that is often translated simply or purely in the Bible. That is to say, without mixed motives. Can you understand that? How it's possible to give not simply or not purely? How it's possible to give with mixed motives? You give, how do you give with mixed motives or with, with complexity? You give, hoping for something back. One of the oddest things that happened to me, I used to pick up hitchhikers. I lived in a town, a small town that had a lot of roads, and it was kind of sensible sometimes to help them get from one road to the other. And I'd pick up hitchhikers, and so often they'd say to me, and if I ever see you on the road, I'll pick you up. And I felt like saying, no, you missed the point. It's raining. It's raining. You're wet. You had your thumb out. You were going my way. I had a pretty good guess as to where you wanted to go. I was going right by there. I didn't pick you up so you would pick me up later. I just wanted to give you a ride. You looked wet. That's all. I don't want anything back from you. But I also understand why they said that. Because so many people think that whenever somebody gives them something, that other person wants or expects something back. That's where the world works. It's not the way God works. He gives simply, purely. He just says, here, enjoy it. Period. He gives to all. He says elsewhere to all who ask. you got to ask. You've got to believe in Him. You've got to ask Him. He'll give to all who ask. And He gives without finding fault. Is it possible to give and find fault simultaneously? Oh, yeah, somebody said over there. How do you give and find fault? You make them feel guilty. Yeah, you know, I'll give it to you, but you don't deserve it. How about this one? This, a student said this to me once. I just can't help but remember it. This, this is his definition of giving and finding fault. If you'd, if you'd done it right the first time, you wouldn't have to ask me for help. If you'd used the money right... The money I gave you last week, you wouldn't be asking me for money now. If you did it the way I told you, you wouldn't be asking me to get you out of this trouble. That's giving and finding fault. Or, this is the last time I'm going to help you. That's giving and finding fault. But God gives without finding fault. Without reproaching. He gives the way we're all supposed to give. He gives It's his nature. He gives simply. He gives to all he gives without finding fault. That's the way in which God gives wisdom to those who ask him. Now, it is true, however, that there are some things for which we both ask and work, like our daily bread. God tells us to work, but he also says he'll give us, and we're supposed to ask, give us this day our daily bread. I do think wisdom falls in that category of things that God gives, and yet things we also work for. How do we work for wisdom? We work for wisdom by watching for wisdom. Let me give you just a few statements that some people made about wisdom. A man named Bruce Waltke said, Wisdom is the skill in the arts of living. Plantinga said, Wisdom is the knowledge of God's world and the knack of fitting oneself into it. A man named Beekner said, the wise give in to creation. The Bible states how the world is, not how it ought to be. How do you gain wisdom? You gain wisdom by watching. By watching the world. By observing the world. But you also do it by asking God to help you see the world rightly. Because it's possible to see it wrongly. You gain wisdom by watching the wise. James 3.13 says, those who are wise will show it by their beautiful lifestyle. It's translated good life in a lot of versions, but really better, our beautiful lifestyle. Watch people who show that. A little while you're going to be taking a test. Whenever you give a test, there's always somebody who's a little bit unhappy. Did you know that? Especially if you get a class of about 100 or so. I taught um, college days again. Uh, taught a Bible introduction class, 300 students a semester. And in that class, it was a Christian school, but if you were a really good baseball or football player, you didn't really have to be a Christian. You just had to be a theist. Now, if you wanted to play in the basketball team or the volleyball team or the tennis team, you pretty much had to be a Christian. But if you wanted to play football or baseball, you just had to believe there, there was a supreme being. And, and so they would take, I'm exaggerating slightly here, but not too much. So the baseball and the football players would take the Bible tests and the Bible exams, and the word was out. There is no way, especially, the, the rumor was, if you're a baseball player, Dorian McMillan will never give you an A, no matter how high your grade is. No matter how hard you study, they will never give you an A, which wasn't true. They'd never actually done well enough for us to know. There was actually a few. And so because of this rumor, there were certain players who would, you know, they'd get angry and they'd come down the hall. And it was my officer, his, just the two of us. And I observed my own tendency sometimes to get defensive when they'd shout, "Dare you give me a C minus, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I'd say something or other, I don't know. But I didn't stay as calm as I would like all the time. And when they went to Dr. McMillan's office, no matter how angry they were, when they came out, you could just tell by their voice that they were all smiles. And I was amazed at this. It just happened over and over for a year, for two years. No matter how angry the footsteps were, no matter how loudly they knocked on the door, and you know, whatever the first words were, they were always happy by the end. It was so remarkable that I decided to ask my colleague who was much older and wiser than me, 30 years my senior, if he would you know, kind of leave the door open a little bit, and next time that happened, I would just park my chair by my door and listen in and see what transpired. And what had transpired was he would say to them something like, tell me what's bothering. He'd just listen until they were done. He would just hear them out. Because I learned that wise people don't answer too fast. If somebody's angry, let them talk. When they're all done... Then give an answer. But if you start giving the answer too early, then they say, oh, you don't understand. You're not listening. And they just, you know, then they go through it all again. And they do want to see a reason. And he would show them the grade book. He'd say, let's take a look at your grade book. Okay. On the first test, you got a 64. Let's see. That would be a D, they would say. Yes. Okay. The second test you didn't take until three weeks later. And we only docked you eight points, although we were supposed to dock you 20 points because your score was a 41. The next test, you got a 72. That is, you know, he would say this without one scintilla of sarcasm. That is a wonderful improvement, you know, to go from a 41. He would just, you know, they'd feel good that they went up from a 41 to a 71. And then, you know, then the final, I'm sure you had a lot of finals to prepare for it. You got a 66. And so let's see, the overall average in your quizzes, you know, your quiz average was 73. And so your average for the course was 65 and a half. And let's see, you think we were, hard, you got a C minus and you think that's unfair. Is that right? And then they would say, well, no, I, you know, I guess not. <laughs> you know, Thank you for giving me a C minus because I really, you know, he did it every time. Every time. And he managed in these things to, to purge. And he could be, you know, a little bit. Sharp tongue just for fun, but he never let it out at least. He had a beautiful lifestyle. And so you watch those who are wise and you gain wisdom in that way. You ask God to give you what was happening with me. I told you a negative story about myself. I think God was giving me a desire to be wise. See, I asked God. I had to do my work of learning from this wise man, right? Right. And I thought about what I heard, and we talked about it repeatedly. But God gave me the desire to want to be wise and to ask for it. And, and the ability, you know, He showed me the right person, but then I had to listen to that right person. And that is indeed the way in which we gain wisdom. Um, if you think about it, the active side of gaining wisdom does begin with fearing God, fearing His displeasure. Revering his wisdom and his understanding and not loving our own. Especially fearing God means when we're in a hard place. James chapter 1 or Hebrews for that matter. We don't say I'll escape any way I can. We fear God enough to say whatever the way out is, it is not the way of disobedience. We humble ourselves before the Lord and do still endeavor to live within the parameters that he gives us for our lives. The act of also includes the prayer, like Solomon's prayer, give your servant a discerning heart. But Solomon also used his eyes and ears. 1 Kings 4.33 says he observed plants and animals. He observed mothers to know what to do and how to treat it when those two mothers came with one child between the two of them. It begins with the fear of the Lord, but it also proceeds by observing Proverbs says to us, observe an undisciplined child and a disciplined child. Observe how pleasant words bring healing and how harsh words stir up strife. Observe the ant working in the summer, safe in the winter. Observe the sluggard turning like a door on its hinges as he lies on his bed. Observe the sluggard as he lowers his hand into the dish. He is too lazy to pick it up again. Folks, that's lazy. <laughs> and observe how his poverty comes on him like, a, like an armed man as a consequence. Observe. Observe the animals and gain wisdom. And James is really the heir of Proverbs because he tells us to fear and trust God and to observe, to ask for wisdom, and to listen. James calls for observation in his own way. He says... Listen, chapter 1, verse 19. Be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. Observe those with a beautiful lifestyle. Gain wisdom. The discussion of trials continues on in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, when he describes the rich and the poor. I've already given a little introduction to this theme about the rich and the poor, but let's develop it just a little bit more. Uh, the poor man's humble circumstances can try him, can put him to the test. And yet the status of the poor man is open to another view. The other view is that the poor man should boast. See that in verse 9? Let the poor man in humble circumstances take pride in his high position. What's the high position mentioned here? What's he thinking of? We might say, well, because we're creating an image of God. But that's... True, but actually something else is stated in chapter 2, verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 2 says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom, he promised those who love him. That's the riches of the of the poor man. Rich in faith and an heir of the eternal kingdom of God. The, the rich man, however should do the opposite. The poor man takes pride in his high position as an heir of the kingdom. The person who is rich should take pride in his low position. And we might think, what should a rich person be humble about? Maybe we'd think the answer to that is sin. And that, again, is a true answer, but it's not exactly the answer James is going to give. The answer James gives in verse 10 is that he, the low position is that he will pass away like a wild flower. Because the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. So in the same way, the rich man will fade away while he goes about his business. That's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah also chapter 50, um, I forget, 56 and 57, I think it is. Isaiah 40 says, all men are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. The rich man is tempted to think. This is also the language of Isaiah. I am God and there is no other. That is to say, I can take care of myself. I can carve out my own destiny. I have my money, I have my friends, I have my power, I have my connections. I have all that money can buy and I will take care of myself. But no, the rich man should exult in his humiliation because he knows, yeah, in this life you can take care of yourself, but you're going to die, a rich man, and you're going to die pretty soon. Maybe not in one day like a wildflower, but in 70 or 80 years. And the older you get, the shorter life seems. It's going to be over fast. And you can't do anything about that. How, rejoice that God has shown you that if you're rich. Rejoice that God has also given you something better, that is, eternal life. So, verse 12 says, Believe God means to bless you. Believe God when He says, Blessed is the man that perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, whether rich or poor, whether tried hard or tried easy. We'll all receive the crown of life, which I told you about in a previous question. The crown of life is the crown that we all receive. Life is the crown. We will all receive eternal life. That's the blessing. Our faith is future-oriented. Hebrews says that. James says it as well. Now, not everybody will take things that way. And then we get to the second part of the this great insight into the nature of the Christian life. And that is... Well, what happens if somebody isn't really interested in taking these trials and growing through them? What shall we say then? Aren't there some people who get angry at God because of a trial? Chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God doesn't single anyone out for a trial. If you're in the middle of a trial, don't say, well, God is tempting me and it's all his fault. God is not evil. He can't be tempted by evil. Nor does he mean to tempt you by evil. He may mean to test you, but it is not his desire to destroy you, so you should fall, verses 14 and 15 say. If you fall in a temptation, what that reveals is not something about the character of God, but about your character. If someone falls, he says, if someone does indeed sin, it's because you are Tempted by your own evil desire, dragged away and enticed. That is to say, there has to be something in you that responded to that temptation. And in fact, our desires, our own lusts, and they can be physical lusts or mental lusts or spiritual lusts. Our own lusts drag us away. The words that are used there in the original language are words from hunting and fishing, lures and and baited hooks your own sin lures you away the sin within you drags you out it's not God's responsibility and so if you fall take it as a diagnosis and take warning from it because unchecked the result of it is finally death death when desire gives conceives it gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death don't be deceived then brothers God is the one, verse 17, who gives every good and perfect gift. Back to the earlier statement. He's the God who gives gifts. What is his gift? If even in the trial you fall, there is a gift. The gift is it shows you your need of his grace. Now I'm back to the introductory segment. When people say there's no grace in James, I'm saying you're not reading carefully enough. Because it's true that James does not have the cross and doesn't tell you you're a sinner in need of the atoning blood of Christ. But it does tell you that you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. Here's the gift that he tells us about. In chapter uh, 1, still, in verse uh, 18, he says, what he wants to do through these trials is give birth to us by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, that little phrase, word of truth, he gives birth to us by the word of truth. That phrase, word of truth, is used, is used exactly four times in the New Testament. This is one of them. In the other three, in two of them, the, the phrase word of truth is, is identified as the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13, just right in the middle of the sentence. I'm not going to go from the NIV, which obscures us a little bit. In which also you heard or by which you also heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. One thirteen Ephesians. Colossians 1.5. Let's go through the middle of it. Uh, on account of the hope laid up for us in heaven, which you heard about in advance, by the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel. It goes on to talk about Also, Paul talks about those who rightly divide the word of truth. You may know that Bible verse. And in context, it's clear that the word of truth that we rightly divide is the gospel salvation. So when he says we get rebirth by the word of truth, what he means is we are reborn by the gospel. What he's saying, therefore, is the trial, when it leads us into sin, even if it leads us into sin, is meant to be a gift. The gift of showing us our need of the gospel. If someone responds poorly, it's a call to faith. In the gospel, that says there is grace even for the one who sins. We might call this a gospel of regeneration. Chapter 1, verse 19, continues along uh, this theme. He says in verse 19, Brothers, you know this brothers you know this 116 starts off don't be deceived 119 says you know this my dear brothers you know that what i'm saying is true this is god's intention he then goes on to add a little bit of a sort of a proverb he says in 119 everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak slow to become angry now there's a lot of truth in that proverb right Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Because anger doesn't bring about anything that God is pleased with. And that's true. This is a proverb. And there's a lot of of truth in the basic proverb. But I really think that this little thing about slow to become angry is probably referring back to chapter 1, verses 13, 14, and 15. The person who is prone to become angry at God for dragging him away, for giving him a trial that's too difficult. He's saying, don't get angry at God. You're not going to get anywhere by becoming angry with God. Be slow to be angry. See what God would do, that he would save your soul. Verse 21 says this again, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Don't don't blame it on others or something else. Get rid of it. And the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word, planted in you which can save you again we have a theology of salvation every time you see sin in your life there's a call to salvation it's a call to put your trust in christ we might put it this way then in this segment james could put it this way james is uh is probably writing to a congregation that is mostly but not exclusively christian in, if James was writing what most people think he was around the year 50 AD or thereabouts Jews and Christians often worship together still in the temple precincts and in various synagogues and there, might be a temp- there might be a synagogue that was mostly Christian but some Jews would still come that's why you have later on in the book he doesn't call everybody a brother later in the book he says simply you rich or you adulterous people and so on that doesn't sound like he's addressing Christians so he kind of mixes it up so when he talks about about trials here, sort of you might say verses 2 to 12 are for Christians. And then we could say that chapter 1, verse 13 to about 21 is for non-Christians. And this is, some of you don't know how to respond to trials. This is it. This is what I have to say to you. Can you, can you depict that? Do you understand that? Let me give you, you want I see frown here or there. I remember preaching in a, in a big church a couple of years ago, and right before, I mean, like two seconds before I was supposed to stand up to preach, the pastor just leaned over to me and said, by the way, there are probably 200 unbelievers here. Now, you know, there were, you know, there were 1,600 people. I don't know. There were a lot of people there. Uh, he, he was trying to say, listen, don't address all your remarks to the Christians. There are a lot of people. There's a small church full of unbelievers here. Say something for them too. A wise preacher will take care not to simply say, all you visiting non-Christians can listen in if you want, but I'm going to ignore you. I think that's what's happening here. He's saying, here's how not to take it. Here's what you should learn if if you've been falling into sin through trials. What you should learn is your need of the gospel. Just kind of could, could we revisit the idea that 13 to 21 is for non-Christians? I'm not saying. That's, sort of a, a, that's not an absolute statement. What I'm saying is that the church to which James wrote appears, through a variety of statements in the book, to have had non-Christians in attendance. Is a Christian capable of grumbling and getting angry and blaming God? Of course, of course we are. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we probably all know that from, uh, from experience for that matter. But what I'm saying is, I'm, it looks to me like he has, you know he's thinking of his non-Christians when he says this. It's not that it's only for them. And the reason why is because in verse 18, he says that, that we might become the first fruits of all he created, He gave us birth through the word of truth. That's, of course, that's true of a Christian. We're, we're reborn by the word of truth. But a non-Christian needs to hear that. That's something that's good for a non-Christian. And verse 21, of course it's true for a Christian that we should get rid of all filth and accept the word planted in us, which can save you. But that language, which can save you, sounds like it's a little bit more for a non-Christian. For a Christian, you'd say, which does save you, or did save you, or is saving you. Okay, So... Is the Christian in view in verses 13 to 21? Can a Christian make these mistakes that need to be corrected? Absolutely. But it looks like he's kind of glancing at the non-Christian right here to me. A little bit more. And it makes sense that there would be both kinds of people in a synagogue in the year 50 A.D., Christians, Jewish Christians, and Jewish non-Christians, just as it would be in the church today. Uh, The next section, if we can move on then, Uh, describes how we should indeed grow. One of the things we do if we want to grow in trial. And what he says is that the word, which he just talked about, the word planted in you, which can save you, the word is something to which we shouldn't merely listen, but it's something we should do. Now, I think I want to erase this and uh, put something else on the board for a minute. The book of James I mentioned earlier has a pattern that certain critics were not so fond of because they thought it was kind of shallow and just uh, stringing things together in an illogical pattern, maybe using key words in a simple way. But actually the book of James follows the basic pattern of rhetoric that was used in the ancient world. And this next few verses is one that we can see very readily. The pattern is first you give your thesis then you give your reason. That would be the main reason Then you embellish, embellishment means more reasons and embellishment includes uh, answering objections and embellishment includes illustrations from nature, especially. And then you give a conclusion to kind of wrap it up. If you look at verses 22 to 26, but maybe 22 to 25, you can see that that pattern is actually here. The thesis is stated right away. Do not merely listen to the Word. You see the first reason that's given? You see it? Raise your hand if you see it. I'm in verse 22. one See it? All right, what's the reason? So you won't deceive yourself. Because if you just listen, and you think that's good enough... You're self-deceived because there is no value in merely listening. Now, he gives an additional reason in the next line. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like, now we have embellishment which uses illustrations, is like a man who looks in a mirror, looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Isn't that silly? Look at yourself in the mirror. Have you ever gone, how many of you guys have have been in a hurry in the morning and you look in the mirror, you tie your tie real fast and it's not quite straight and and you don't button your little buttons, right? And then about three in the afternoon, for some reason, you go like this and you realize they're still unbuttoned. Have you done it? How many of you guys have gone out of the house half shaved? Anybody here done that? A lot of hands are going up for the sake of the camera um, <laughs> it happens. I once had a pastor was a dear guy, and he would uh, you know he would take us around on, on hospital visits or visiting shut-ins and just kind of talk to us. We loved what he did. He would tell us all kinds of real practical stuff one time i 'll never forget the day he told us to you know brush our teeth before preaching and you know put on deodorant and wear clean clothes. We all thought, you know, we know that. But, you know, we love him for making sure that we all hear it one more time just in case. He also told us about how important it is to look neat and organized. And he told us how he had really wild hair. And he had to work really hard to get his hair calmed down. And, you know, he sometimes would put mayonnaise on his hair to get it. And he would sometimes put bobby pins and paper clips and, you know, girls things in his hair to, you know, get it to... And uh, one day, not long after he told me this, only at home in the morning, you understand, he came to take me to a hospital visit with him, and he had one of those clips that he told us about in his hair. Just a regular old, you know, one of those two-inch-long silver clips that little girls wear. He just had that, keeping his, you know, this little wave he had in the front in order. And I I thought, I'm not going to say anything to him about it because... His hair is really wild today, and he knows he has to do it. And, you know, it's just with me early in the morning. And I don't want to have to say to him, you know, Pastor, you've got a clip in your hair. Because then he'd have to say, well, I know, Dan, but, you know, for you, it doesn't really matter because, you know, we're just going to do this thing together. I don't want to embarrass him that way. And so the day proceeded. And as he later told us, his wife asked him at about 7 o'clock, Harold, what are you doing with that clip in your hair? he walked around all day long. He had seen hundreds of people with a, with a little two-inch-long clip in his hair. He had looked in the mirror. He had said, my hair is disorganized. I'm going to put a clip. And he forgot. Isn't that silly? Isn't it silly to look at the Word of God and see yourself in it? And then forget what you see. Isn't it silly to look and see, not your physical face, but see your your soul reflected back to you? To gaze into it even, the language of James here is not just looking, but gazing into the mirror. That little phrase in verse 24, after looking at himself, it's really more like gazing at yourself. You gaze at yourself for whatever reason, that you know, maybe... You know, if you're a woman, get your makeup on straight, or if you're a guy that you know you got wild facial hair or something, trying to organize it in some way or other. And you gaze. You may take a few minutes to do it. Silly to forget. Blessed to look, to remember, to gain freedom. To do what it says. That's a conclusion. It's God's blessing for you to walk in His ways. Tempting sometimes to think the law constrains us, constricts us. But James says, no, it's the path of blessing. Then, verse 26 and 27, he describes, we might say, his concluding thought about religion and true faith as it appears in this first chapter. He says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself undefiled by the world. Did you hear the three marks of true religion there? Did you see them? Do you hear them? Three marks. Number one, what is it? Control your tongue. It's a negative t- sign. You don't have true religion if you don't control your tongue. What's the second sign of true religion? Look after widows and orphans. That is to say, look after the poor, the defenseless, those who have the least. And number three, to be unstained by the world. Even two of them are negative, saying beware of sin. And one is positive. Do good to those who are needy. Now, there are some Christians who don't like the word religion. James says religion that's pure in God's sight is this. Some people don't like the word religion. Do you know why? They say things like, Christianity is not a religion. Because what they think of when, when they hear the word religion is, you know, man-made religiosity and, and uh, you know, the trappings of religion. What people sometimes call smells and bells, incense and robes and, and fancy sounds and vaulted ceilings and so forth. And it makes them nervous, and I understand why they're made nervous by it, because the show can supplant the inner reality, right? But, James says, essentially, the show of religion worries you. No show of religion worries me. Real religion shows itself. Real religion is visible, concrete. Don't tell me, don't give me your confession I have religion. I have doctrine. Show it to me by something visible, controlling the tongue, using it well, caring for widows and orphans, staying unstained by the world. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.